You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. You're listening to episode 278 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Paul Tarjan is a lifelong nerd and engineer. Nowadays, he works at Stripe mostly on developer productivity and infrastructural components like rate limiters, core abstractions, large code refactors, and language design. In the past, he helped build HHVM and Hack at Facebook, working on the open graph and changed your search results to not just be 10 blue links. Thanks for joining me on the show, Paul. Ah, thanks, Brittany. Good to be here. Excellent. So, Paul, what is your developer origin story? <laughs> it's a fun way to ask that. Uh, I, I learned to code at age 12, mostly to mod video games. It was my biggest hobby. Um, I did my undergrad back in Canada, uh, in Calgary. Uh, did my master's at Stanford in networking. Um, then I joined Yahoo and became a product engineer that was, uh, as you mentioned, changing my, my your, your blue links to just uh, have a bunch of images and whatever in them. Um, after Yahoo Search, uh, my, my stint there, I spent some time at Facebook. I worked there for five years, all sorts of stuff. I started up in the like button, uh, doing product work, and then slowly fell down the stack until I was down in the bowels working on the compiler. Um, big, big amount of uh, fun, fun different experiences there. Uh, after Facebook, I started my own company for a year. <laughs> uh, I figured out startups are hard and it wasn't really for me. Um, <laughs> maybe not in that order. Uh, <laughs> then after that, I joined Stripe about four years ago. Uh, I started the developer productivity team, um, and I'm the tech lead on it right now. So that's a really cool story. I am definitely going to steal your line about falling down the stack because that's really great. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. Nobody else wanted to do it. I... <laughs> I'm primarily a back-end developer, so I, I really like that. And I keep going further down, down the back. So I like that a lot. Nice. So, um, of course, you work at Stripe. So what is your experience with Ruby? Uh, my personal experience was actually pretty limited. Uh, I, I learned Ruby to be at Stripe. Um, I actually <laughs> forgot to ask what language the company was in when I took the job. Uh, so that was a pretty exciting, interesting experience. But it's similar enough to most of my other languages I knew um, that I could pretty pick it up pretty easily. So did you have to do any whiteboarding or coding exercises in order to get the job and they just pretty much were open to any sort of language that you wanted to, uh, to use? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Stripe's interview is is language agnostic, and you're actually supposed to use whatever language you want to use, rather than like show off with using Haskell or something in your in your intro. Uh, so in, instead, you just use your language you're most familiar with. I actually think I used a combination of languages, maybe JavaScript for something and PHP for another one, and whatever I was coding in at the time. Oh, that's really cool. That's that's a really neat approach to doing it. So, as my first guest from someone at Stripe, what is Stripe's history with Ruby? Mm, uh, good. Okay, so Stripe uses Ruby as our main programming language. Um, we store it all in a monorepo uh, intentionally. <laughs> uh, and Patrick has a good post on Quora about this. You can go look it up. Uh, our CEO, Patrick uh, Collinson, sorry. Uh, he has a, a good post about why he chose Ruby for us. Um, I think it was a little easier to hire than his original choice of Smalltalk. <laughs> Uh, we have we have millions of lines of code of in Ruby and even two dedicated Ruby teams directly, uh, one for infrastructure and one for the language development, uh, both of which are in developer productivity. Um, so basically, Stripe is committed pretty hard to the Ruby language. I, I noticed that they're very involved in a lot of the conferences. Definitely have speakers at Ruby Kaiji and things like that. So I mean, Stripe 
has put out like a, a lot of amazing libraries in Ruby and seems pretty committed to that community. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're very close knit with Ruby. We use it for almost everything at our company, so it's very important to us. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, Sorbet was an exciting announcement for our community. Can you tell us about the project? <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm glad you're excited about it. Uh, it's uh, you know been a few years of my life, so that's good to hear. Uh, okay, so I joined Stripe three and a half years ago, uh, and at the time it became apparent to me that we were actually following in very similar footsteps to what Facebook did. Uh, we predominantly use a single language uh, and that language is dynamically typed. Um, so I, I tried my best at the time to find another company that was working on a type checker for Ruby. Uh, and so I wouldn't have to build one uh, because it took us like three years to build this kind of thing at Facebook. Um, so I found some folks at GitHub actually working on something similar, uh, but unfortunately it was very alpha and wasn't gonna work for us. Um, so then we also found a great open source library by Jeff Foster and his students, uh, like a nine year long project that they've been working on. Um, but again, sadly, it was it was research software uh, and hadn't really had a large product development uh, or production deployment uh, that was using it. So it was gonna take a bunch of effort for us to... So after evaluating those, uh, we finally decided we had to build it ourselves. So thankfully I had done something similar like this at Facebook. Uh, and one of the most senior engineers at the company, Nelson, agreed to join me on this project. Uh, and we found a person who had just finished working on the next Scala compiler as their PhD thesis uh, to, to join our effort. Um, so the three of us uh, started down this road. We built a, a project brief internally to socialize within the company and get buy-in from other engineers. Um, and uh, after getting the green light, we chatted with some more folks. Uh, we, we met Greedo Van Rossum and Yuka. The, the two folks that were working on MyPy at Dropbox, um, which is a similar project for Python. Uh, and and at, after chatting with them, uh, I finally was convinced that we're not going to build Sorbet in Ruby. Uh, speed was going to be one of our most important features. So I just couldn't get that without using a faster language. Uh, and the main sure selling point for me, which I thought for using Ruby would, would be the community contributions um, would be very high because it's an easier easier to have the community join in if it's in Ruby. But they were finding they weren't getting the same contributions uh, just because being a type checker is so much harder um, than, than the language uh, choice. So we decided not to do in Ruby at that point. Um, we talked to a bunch of other folks too, working on similar projects, the PyTypes folk, the Hack folks, Dart, um, lots of different discussions. Uh, and then when we finalized on our design, it took us about eight months to build it um, and, and ship it internally at Stripe. Then we spent about eight more months to, uh, launching it internally and developing a bunch of uh, driving the adoption really hard so that so we are sure that this project was actually going to be useful. Um, and then about four more months after that to, to build the open source version and ship that out to everyone else. Wow, that is incredible. So what was the initial pitch to uh, to basically the internal Stripe team to say that you wanted to work on this? Were you hired for this goal or is this something <laughs> that you you found your niche? Yeah, I was accidentally hired for this goal. No, no, they did not know uh, that this was going to be <laughs> thrust upon them. Uh, it was more like I was hired to to find any problem that Stripe is having at the moment and go fix it. And after staring at all the problems, I thought that developer productivity was the, the biggest thing that, that we can uh, advance ourselves in order to have a big impact at the company. So no, not directly hired, but 
But I did notice that as part of productivity, like we needed a type checker. Uh, so I, I built out a big document describing all the benefits and showing the pros and cons. Um, one of the nice things in the selling point was that you only have to dedicate like three people to this problem instead of smearing the problem across the org. And I very much like problems where the solution is is a, like a, a dedicated couple of janitors that are in there cleaning everything up as opposed to like having to force everyone to do their little part um, and, and derail their product roadmaps. Well, that's really cool. So what language did you ultimately choose to build Sorbet? Uh, it's written in C++. C++17, actually. It's actually a pretty good language. I've been pretty happy. Was it hard to find people to work in that language or is that something that the team of three just had to really scale up on? No, I mean, uh, thankfully, the three of us had some familiar with C++ before, so it was it was pretty straightforward. Uh, the, the nice thing is with with at least these folks and with with many of the other senior folks that the language choice isn't as strongly important as like the design architecture. So we can just figure out whatever language we want as long as we're choosing the subset that makes kind of sense for us. That makes sense. So Sorvay is a gradual type checker. What does that mean and how can we use it to our advantage? Uh, sure. So gradual means two things. Um, it means you can gradually adopt it in your code base over many years. Uh, and it means that you does, don't have to use it in 100% of the code base. Right? So uh, the biggest difference between a static type system like, like Java or C uh, is that there is an untyped type which works anywhere. So you can call any method on it. It can be any subclass. It just allows itself through all the type checks. Um, and and this is super useful in that, like, you don't have to f do an all-or-nothing approach. You can you can just do a partial rollout. Um, so, for example, when we started, uh, about 25% of our variables were typed. So that means that about 25% of the code base was based on the standard library and and things like that. Um, but that means 75% of it was untyped. So during that adoption period, when we were driving typedness in the code base, we were just trying to, to drive up as much typedness as we could find. And now a year and a half later, we've actually flipped it. 75% uh, of our call sites are typed and only 25% is untyped. So it's gonna be a gradual adoption within Stripe. And this is kind of the suggestion that we do for the community as well. The impact of Sorbet being at Stripe has actually caused developers to write code differently. Yeah, it's really interesting. So like when you start coding a method and you like write down the type signature, if you say this returns a string or an integer or maybe an array of strings or a function, like when you write that type signature, you start to second guess yourself like, hmm, maybe I should probably make a couple of functions or maybe I should uh, shape my code in a different way that like makes the API a little bit differently. And yeah, we've definitely found that that literally writing the type signature makes you think about your APIs a little bit more. So from a talk that you co-presented on, you said, at Stripe, we believe that a type system provides substantial benefits for a big code base. Can you give us more detail behind that thought? <laughs> Thanks for listening to my talk. <laughs> um, we, we believe that uh, developer productivity is one of the key drivers of a company's success, right? So as your code base grows, uh, types in your code are are in the same regard, right? So they, they add a few things. They, they add agility, right? So you can refactor your entire code base and you know that you got all the call sites. Um, like your code shouldn't be a static thing that's sitting there written once and never never dealt with. It's, it's a living, breathing entity that you can, you can uh, migrate around. Um, two, it, it adds readability, 
So we believe that documenting the API is, is great, as most engineers do. But if the types are enforced at runtime and used by a tool, then the, the documentation never falls out of sync with the actual code usage. Um, and three, uh, they require less testing. Right? So there's a whole class of tests that you don't have to write. Right? They're, they're just done by the type checker for you beforehand. Uh, your, a lot of your error cases are, are dealt with automatically. Like <laughs> when we first shipped Sorbet, a lot of the errors we originally saw were in the error cases. People would misspell their rescue exceptions uh, or people would forget uh, to handle certain cases like nilness checks and, and various things like that. So the, that whole genre just doesn't have to be tested because we take care of it. Um, it. It's very similar to like TypeScript for JavaScript or MyPy for Python. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I definitely have more questions for you, but we're going to take a quick break for more from our sponsor. A good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co., creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the Office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co's been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font family is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails' own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co. font family right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time, as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code RUBY, R-U-B-Y, for your discount at checkout. Thank you, Heffler & Co., for sponsoring the show. Back to you, Paul. So RubyGems currently lists the last supported version of Survey at 0.0.1.pre.prealpha. <laughs> so number one, I love that. <laughs> but I that was our placeholder gem <laughs> before we launched. We didn't want anyone to take the name. <laughs> I feel like it's slightly nerdy, and I just mm -hmm. deeply love that. But um, okay. do you have a target for 1.0? Um, uh, yeah, so so first of all, our, we have since launched, since that... Uh, uh, that that number, and if if you go check Ruby Gems now, you'll see it's uh, 0.4.4418. Um, so we're we're a little bit farther ahead than pre pre alpha at this point. Um, but no, unfortunately, we don't have a target date for 1.0. Um, as you can probably tell, we're not using Semver uh, for our version numbers, the the semantic version numbers. We're just using an auto incrementing number from the the number of commits on the the Git repository, actually. Um, one, one thing that I did notice when I was managing the open source for HHVM is we put a ridiculous amount of time into our versioning number schemes and, and all of the stuff around that. Uh, and for Sorbet, uh, we're trying to spend that time on fixing your bugs instead of picking good versioning numbers. Um, but I, I will say that it is very much production ready. Like we use it heavily at Stripe. Uh, so do many of our uh, partners. You can see their logos on sorbet.org. So it's uh, the 1.0 is, is less of a, a direct indication of production readiness. 
Um, uh, but we will we'll take this into account. If it, if the community wants it, we'll happily drive towards it. So I have this like dream that there is a Ruby on Rails Justice League out there of the different companies that have very large scale legacy applications. <laughs> and so yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't know which character Stripe's playing, but it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely a good one. But uh, yeah, I, I, I won't I won't <laughs> speculate <laughs> for our listeners. But there, actually, there is. We talk a lot. the The large Ruby users, uh, we we have our own Slack channels and and discuss some of the problems with scaling. Uh, with with Ruby, right? Like large code bases end up with very different challenges than small code bases do. Um, so we definitely talk and definitely share tips and tricks of, of how to work with this kind of stuff. So basically, you knew that you were going to be writing this type checker at Stripe, and you knew that you needed to get experience with it before you were to open source it. I know that you're using it internally, but you consulted these companies and say, you know, who is willing to trial this to make sure that it's it's working efficiently? Yeah, exactly. We we did a big dark launch period, um, which I was actually pretty happy with. Uh, we did 30 companies total through our, our private beta program. Um, we basically didn't want to just take some code and throw it over the wall and say, ah, we hope this works. Um, it'd be much better if people had like, practiced the onboarding routines and had like seen if any of the, the code bases worked for them. So we had actually 500 people apply to our private beta program, and we ran 30 of them through been super, super helpful. Like we, we were able to like ship a much more polished product. Uh, if you had seen what the first people had to go through versus what the current open source people do, uh, it's night and day. That's amazing. Well, I mean, it's such a huge uh, contribution to the community and it seems to be really well vetted. So what was the process of actually open sourcing it so that everyone could use it? Uh, sure. So we first built it internally. Uh, it took us about eight months, as I said before. Um, and, and we launched it through that. Uh, and then once we switched to open source mode, it was only about four months. Most of the effort was into like rebuilding the same tooling that we used internally to, to ship it to our code base, right? All of the things that automatically generated shim files and all of the things that found uh, some of your to-do constants that weren't fully resolved. Like, like all of these tooling that we built inside, we just productionized those and, and switched them into the open source world. Um, so that was that was most of the time it was. It was just building like Ruby scripts at that point. So now that it's released um, to the open source community, how much of your time is now spent devoted to Sorbet? Is that going to continue to be your main priority? Oh, good question. For me, uh, I unfortunately have a, uh, a few other responsibilities throughout the organization. So I think I'm going to pull back a bit from Sorbet. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go work on some of our, our other language tooling teams for a little bit. team for Sorbet is going to keep trucking along on the, the open source side as well as the internal use. Like we have a bunch of new features that we want to add from the roadmap um, as well as a bunch of other support that we want to do for the open source community. Right, we're dedicating uh, full engineering time with an on-call rotation and all that kind of stuff for the open source, so that we can at least have people supporting on that. Um, but no, it's definitely going to be a lot of a lot of other work on Sorbet continuing. Like our company's fully bought in, uh, so we we can't just drop the ball here. That is incredible to have someone devoted to an on-call rotation on Sorbet. That that's absolutely unbelievable. So oh yeah, I mean we <laughs> we take this seriously. You get your pull request reviewed with an SLA and the the whole thing. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that brings me to my next question. So how can our users support Sorbet? Uh, just use it, right? Like the more people that are using it, the more people giving us feedback, um, the better we can make it for the community. Like 
I always highly advocate uh, a pull request is a lot better than an issue. So if you want to get in there and go learn a type checker and, and practice with this, it's actually kind of fun to write. Uh, I would highly advocate that you you get in and start coding with us. Um, we're, we're very open to this. It's, it, there's a lot of C++ in there. There's a lot of Ruby in there. So you can pick up different pieces depending on your language background. Um, but yeah, just join in on Sorbet. You you can also you know go into the the periphery of the community too right like we we have a Stack Overflow question um, list and if you just help out other community members that's super super helpful for us too. Awesome. So I have to ask one last fun question. I've seen multiple photos and videos of you juggling, which is really a <laughs> it's a perfect fit to what you do. So can you please tell me more about juggling? Oh, very nice. Um, it's a, it's an awesome hobby. I love juggling. I will highly advocate it to other engineers. The correlation is actually pretty high between jugglers and programmers, uh, as I've found at many of my companies over the years. Um, I learned to juggle when I was eight. Uh, I was a competitive swimmer at the time, and you'd spend eight hours at a swim meet, uh, and you'd swim for maybe four minutes. Uh, and your Game Boy only lasts three hours, so clearly you have to find something else to do in the meantime. Um, so I've, I picked up juggling and taught all the other swim kids. Uh, and, and even over my time as, as an engineer, like I used to run hackathons all over the world for Facebook. Um, and to keep the kids awake, we used to do a 2 a.m. juggling class. <laughs> so I've taught over 500 people to juggle during that. <laughs> uh, such a fun skill. Yeah, it's and, a really fun. What was the weirdest thing that you've juggled? <laughs> Not thing. Things don't uh, aren't that hard, right? Like you can juggle torches, you can juggle knives. Like like these things are just the exact same thing as long as you catch them by the correct end. Uh, it's more like juggling on a unicycle. That was probably my my most proud thing. I, you can ride one. You, you can you can learn to ride a unicycle. You can learn to juggle, and putting them together is actually a, a third skill that's kind of fun. Uh, to, to push on. <laughs> well, I'm stealing many quotes from you from this episode, but making sure you catch it on the right end. Is <laughs> That's all it is to juggling. <laughs> uh, don't don't tell. I won't advance, uh, advise your listeners to try this at home, right? Uh, unless unless you come chat with me. <laughs> so, Paul, how can we keep up with you and Stripe and Sorbet? Uh, sure. sure, we have a blog on sorbet.org. So go check that out. Uh, and of course, you can follow me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I have a fairly unique name, uh, Paul Terjan. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. Wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Listeners, definitely give Sorbet a try. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much.